This second conference of the retreat explores the very messy narratives of the book of Genesis, which set the stage for all of the subsequent actions of God's revelation in history. It explores the roles of Eve, the mother of all the living, Sarah and Hagar, the mothers of the children of Abraham, Leah and Rachel, sisters who were wives of Jacob, and the very curious but pivotal role of Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. Somehow or another, um, it's hard to see that. And yet, those who wrote the book of Genesis, or, or wrote that first chapter of the book of Genesis, somehow or another, are able to see something else, see this great plan, see this goodness, and that creation has been an act of love coming forth from its creator. It has a lot of order in it. it it's, it's taking chaos and, and breaking it down and then piecing it back together like a jigsaw puzzle so that what was once a mess becomes a much clearer and beautiful picture. But after that first chapter, what we see is a continual devolution into more and more chaos. And the book of Genesis kind of really begins in chaos, and it doesn't end well. Um, but there are some fascinating moments throughout it. Uh, clearly, Genesis, the, the book of Genesis that we have, um, really, it, it's been used very effectively to assert the patriarchal dominance of men over women. But throughout the stories of Genesis, men are not all that effective and women are pretty powerful in in uh shaping the way things go so of course as we start at the, the women of genesis we have to start with the first woman eve who of course is the great villain of the human race <laughs> if it weren't for eve all would be well as we keep being reminded and reminded and reminded um, Except if you look closely at that story of the temptation or the, the invitation to eat from the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, it's hard to separate Eve from her husband, Adam. And neither one of them actually has a name yet. <laughs> um, they are, you know, in the previous chapter, uh, as Eve is created and brought forth from Adam, for the first time, he looks at her and sees, at last, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. This one shall be called woman because she's just like me. Somehow or another, Adam's eyes are not yet open to the fact that she's different. <laughs> they are together. At this point in the book of Genesis, they are never separated. So it's not a picture where Eve is off by herself out of the control of her husband, Adam, and therefore susceptible to temptation. They are in this together. And as you read that story, um, it certainly took a little more effort on the part of the serpent to convince Eve to eat the fruit than it took Eve to convince Adam to eat the fruit. They're in this together. And the, so this, this idea of blaming Eve is not fair because the two of them, the human race together, made a choice. 
And Jonathan Sachs will repeatedly make this point throughout his, throughout his uh, reflections on the, the whole Torah, that this invitation that God has given to us um, is an invitation and to listen rather than to see. That's why our, our morning prayer this morning was very, very appropriate, inviting us to listen in the silence to, the, to God speaking. Because the, the Bible will repeatedly make the point that our eyes will deceive us. Our ears will deceive us too, unless we continually train them to hear the word of God being spoken in the depths of our heart. But it's a matter of listening rather than seeing. And so this quote, original sin that occurs in the Garden of Eden is a failure to listen and a triumph over the power of what we see. So there's the man and the woman looking at the tree that they've been told that they're not allowed to eat from, which every parent knows you never say to children, so I'm not sure what's up with God, but um, they're looking at it and it is pleasing and meant for wisdom. And instead of listening to the voice of God speaking in their hearts, they trust their eyes and they choose to eat of the fruit and their eyes are opened. And as I read that story continually, it's like, there's the key. Eating that fruit opened our eyes. Some say that's a good thing. Some say not so good. But what happens there is for the first time, as the Bible tells the story, we are seeing ourselves and we are seeing each other and we are seeing the world, not through the eyes of God who looked at it and saw that it was very good, but with human judgment that only sees the flaws. So as soon as their eyes are opened, they look at themselves and they see how different they are. Everything that's wrong with them, they're filled with shame and they cover themselves. And then God finds them. But here's the thing. They get caught. God realizes what they've done. That he realizes that they're now have the ability to judge for themselves. And that's going to have some consequences. But here's the curious thing about Genesis. It looks like God is cursing them. First, he curses the serpent. And then he supposedly curses Eve. He tells her that, you know, as a result of this, she's going to bear children in pain. And she's not going to be able to avoid it so much because she's going to long for her husband, but she's going to bear children. It might take work. It will cause suffering. But that she is going to be the source of life. Meanwhile, to her husband, Adam, he says, you're going to die. You're going to work. You're, you're going to work your butt off. You're going to, it's going to be, everything you earn is going to be hard, and then you're going to die. But to his wife, Eve, you're going to feel pain. You're going to feel suffering. But the result of your pain and suffering will be life. 
man is sentenced to death. The woman is, quote, cursed to bring forth life. And then this very curious juxtaposition is right after that. Adam looks at his wife and for the first time calls her by name. Or gives her a name or calls her by name, he calls her Eve. It is the first time in the book of Genesis that the woman is given a name and then a title. He calls her Eve because she became the mother of all the living. That's quite a title. It's quite a mission. It's quite a, an elevation. Because it is through Eve that the human race will continue. And all the patriarchy in the world can't change that. It's through Eve that life will continue. And through Eve that life will come forth. Of course, life from then on isn't pretty, but life continues. Her first two children don't like each other, and we get introduced to the first that doesn't end in the book of Genesis, sibling rivalry. Siblings set against each other, big time whole story of the book of Genesis are, is, are these highly dysfunctional families in which the jealousy and the resentment and the juxtaposition for power and position among siblings is kind of the story, the whole thing. Uh, and yet she continues to give forth life. She has more children. So we get that story at the beginning, which again, you know, has been come passed down to us as a condemnation of Eve and the seductress, when she didn't do too much seducing, she didn't require all that much to eat the fruit. <laughs> like, um, they did this together. And yes, as the story goes, and it is a great myth and it is a great, it, it portrays great truth. But it also identifies that the promise of life, the continuation of creation, that is very good, is being passed on to women. And men are helpers in all that. Fast forward a little bit, we get up to um, the, you know, the call of Abra Abraham, because again, it, it just devolves from, from that, that point on. And um, we, we reach the point just before the flood where God looks at the world, which has devolved into nothing but violence. The order of creation has turned into anarchy. Uh, there is no law. Every person has taken the law into their own hands. And violence rules the world and violence rules the, the earth. And again, how different is it from what is true today? Um, Noah and the flood and that whole drama happens. Um, the Tower of Babel happens and empires get introduced into the whole mix which are the, and the empires are gonna play this huge part in the history of the world because the key to an empire is to turn human beings into a labor force, to turn us into objects for the sake of power. And the Tower of Babel does that. Um, Jonathan Sachs has this very insightful story from the rabbis reflecting on the Tower of Babel. Um, 
that is this came about and it is the work of the empire the babylonian empire is the first empire and they start building it and they have sub subjected the people to slavery essentially even if they paid them to build the tower but the value system of the tower of babel was such that um if a person fell off the tower and died as a result of the fall from the high tower nobody batted an eyelash but if a brick fell and the brick was so damaged that it could not be used in the construction of the tower. There was great mourning and lamenting over this awesome loss. So the rabbis notice that. It's not in the scriptures, but they see that as the result of the dehumanization of the empires. And then, of course, God calls Abram and his wife Sarah and makes this great promise that these two people are going to be the parents of many nations. Um, but they're both old and they both think it's hysterical and they take matters into their own hands and the character of Hagar gets introduced. Um, and so the first child of, the, of Abraham is through Hagar, Ishmael. And it's just curious, this relationship between Sarah and Hagar is complicated and ugly and messy and fascinating to watch as it, as it plays through. And who knows how all the dynamics are going in there. They're kind of murky as we piece these things together. And so um, as soon as Hagar becomes uh, pregnant with Abraham's child, she, it says uh, Sarah falls in her esteem. She had been Sarah's servant. And now she's not treating Sarah with the respect that Sarah expects. So Sarah mistreats her. And God tells Abraham, let Sarah do whatever she wants. Interesting. Um, Ishmael is born. Uh, and there's still enmity between Sarah and Hagar. And the promise continues where Abraham and Sarah receive the promise from God in various ways that they are going to have a son and their son is going to inherit the covenant, not Ishmael. And they both laugh. They both think this is hysterical because they're both very old. And yet they have Isaac. And Sarah doesn't like the idea that Isaac and Ishmael are becoming friends. And somehow or another, um, at Sarah's insistence, Ishmael and Hagar are banished. Although Abraham doesn't really want to do that. But they're, they're banished. And then there's the whole drama with Isaac and uh, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice him at God's command. We don't hear Sarah's voice in that. Maybe he didn't tell her. <laughs> Assuming that may be the case. Um, Isaac, Isaac has some redeeming qualities, but Isaac's kind of a, uh, he's a carbon copy of Abraham. His whole life, he's just repeating the actions that his father Abraham did. But his wife, Rebecca, she's a force of nature. Um, of course, they have their two sons, Esau and Jacob, the, the, the twins. Um, and Isaac prefers Esau, and Rebekah prefer, prefers Jacob, and the promise ends up coming to Jacob for good news or bad news. It seems as the story goes out, Esau would not have been a great patriarch. Um, he had been more better things to do, <laughs> like getting rich. <laughs> um, and, uh, but then the, then the drama of, of Jacob 
comes about. Jacob has to flee after he steals the birthright from his, his brother and flees to um, this relative of Rebecca, Laban. And Laban has two daughters, and Jacob meets them both at the same time and falls head over heels in love with the younger daughter, Rachel. And I, nobody fell head, more head over heels in love with anyone than Jacob fell in, in over Rachel. However, that happened. There is somehow romance in the scriptures, but he is deeply in love with her and um, willing to do anything for her. Uh, and you know, Laban is deceiving the deceiver, and you know, and then tricks Jacob after he works for seven years to earn the right to marry. The woman that he loves, Rachel, he ends up marrying her older sister, Leah, um, and he's bad. So he actually gets to marry Rachel a week later. Well, then you have this lovely family dynamic where you have two wives. One knows that she isn't loved, and the other knows that she is. Leah knows that the scriptures suggest, it's more than suggesting about that Rachel was beautiful and Leah not so much. Um, but Leah was acutely aware that she was not favored. And she prays and her prayer is answered and she is blessed with the ability to have children. Whereas Rachel, Rachel is not having children. And then there's trouble between the two of them as, as this happens. So Leah has a few sons, Rachel has no one. Um, she introduces Jacob to her maidservant. Again, these maidservants getting in the way. Um, and she thinks those, that's going to work. It never works. Apparently, they never figure that out. Um, Leah gets jealous again. More stuff going on. Um, and, you know, the, between the two of them, there's a great deal of, of animosity. Let's see if we can see this. Yeah, they just, they just fight with each other a lot. Um, and finally, Rachel um, gives birth to Joseph. And Jacob, again, blinded by, by love. Which is, again, this is, that, that may well be the key to this story. It's hard, you know, Jacob is deeply in love with Rachel. He's blinded by that love. He can't see anything else around him because of his profound love for Rachel. He can't see Leah's suffering. He can't hear her. He can't see her sons or her daughters as his. And they know it. He can't see. Again, his eyes are not connected. He's not hearing the right things. He's blinded by this, this intense love. And finally, Rachel gives birth to Joseph, and Jacob dotes on Joseph like there's no tomorrow. And even in, when Rachel has her second son, Benjamin, and dies in childbirth, all that Jacob has left of the deep passion of his life are Joseph and Benjamin. And the other 10 sons are not happy about this, and Joseph doesn't help matters any, I mean, really. <laughs> 
know, prancing down to breakfast one morning. Here's the dream I had last night. <laughs> I dreamt that I was in charge and you were all worshiping me. <laughs> Not a wise choice when you're the youngest of. <laughs> um, and so the story, the story kind of gets starts to get complicated. Uh, and again, all this jealousy, all this hatred, and the rabbis, as they reflect on this relationship between Rachel and Leah and Jacob and all that family dynamics, they're seeing two things. They're seeing that Leah or Rachel was truly deeply loved, and that that's not a bad thing. But Leah was invisible and therefore could not be treated with justice. Love blinded Jacob, and therefore he was incapable of real justice, of seeing clearly, seeing rightly. His eyes, like the eyes of Adam and Eve at the tree, deceived him, and he couldn't give a wholehearted response to his family because he was blinded, not by love, by blinded by love from seeing justice. When the rabbis say the lesson of the story of Rachel and Leah is that love alone is never enough because love can be so selfish and so self-centered and that love needs to always be accompanied by a vision that sees wider than it can. And a justice that allows us to extend love, not to that or who is easy to love, who is attractive in our eyes and pleasing like the fruit on the tree. But justice requires that love gets extended to those who deserve it but don't necessarily evoke it in us. Those who are crying out for it, and Leah cried out for it, and Jacob couldn't hear her. And so the consequence of missing love or, or separating love and justice is a skewed love that created a great deal of dissension within, within the family. I mean, a lot of dissension within the family. So much so that the story um, has this horrible, horrible scene where Joseph goes dancing off at his father's command, what he was thinking once again. Let's say I've got 10 brothers who want to kill him. Let me send him off alone to, to meet them. Um, okay. They must love him as much as I do. He couldn't even see that, that his sons didn't love Joseph as much as he did. And they see him coming and they say, here's the dreamer. We can put an end to our misery by putting an end to him. And they plot to kill him. Uh, and they end up, you know, taking his coat, the coat of many colors, the famous coat of many colors, throwing him in the cistern to wait for something. They don't kill him right away. Reuben, the oldest brother, wants to save him. He's plotting to save him. But before he can execute his plan, Judah, and this is very significant, Judah, 
which becomes the most celebrated of all the tribes of Jacob, Judah, comes up with the plan. Why would we kill him when we can make some money off of him? And sees the traders coming and convinces the other brothers to sell him into, into slavery. And Reuben comes back and is distraught by this because he had every plan to save him and restore him to his father. And in the end, as that story continues, Reuben is never forgiven. Somehow or another, bad blood between Jacob and Reuben. Um, and Reuben, as the story of Genesis says, Reuben is constantly misunderstood. His motives are always misunderstood by his father. And so the oldest son of Jacob is essentially disinherited. The next two sons of Jacob um, are disinherited because they avenged in a, in a dangerously violent way the rape of their sister. So this is a great story, just lovely, isn't it? Judah, though, ends up favored somehow or another. But Judah is not a nice guy. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. And off they go, and they assume they're never going to see him again. Jacob is never the same. Never the same again. He's still so blinded by his love for Rachel that he is he's utterly inconsolable for years and years and years. Meanwhile, the sons are now ready to have sons of their own. And Jacob has a son. There's a couple of sons. And his eldest, or his eldest son marries a woman named Tamar. Tamar seems like for years, I thought, Tamar, what, what? this makes no sense. It's Jonathan Sachs who, who taught me that Tamar, this daughter-in-law of Judah, is actually the key to the whole drama of the book of Genesis. Her actions bring redemption out of an unredeemable story in a very strange way. So she's married to Judah's oldest son, who it says does evil in the sight of the Lord, and so his life is taken of him. And they've got these wonderful rules, which, you know, the Leverite marriage rules that says if a, if a husband dies childless, uh, then his next youngest brother should take his wife as his own and they should try to have children, but the children would be the children of the brother who died. So Tamar's first husband, Er, his brother, oldest brother was Onan, and Onan was not interested in producing children that would not be his. So he dies. And then the next son is married to her. And he's not interested in having children that are not his own. So he dies. Judah has one son left. And he's not about to put him in that position of, of honoring this law. So he keeps putting off. And meanwhile, Tamar, as a childless woman, has absolutely no standing. As a widowed woman without a child, she is nothing, a zero in the culture. But she has rights. And her rights are being violated by Judah, who was never really one for rights, apparently. 
in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so Judah realizes this, that this is a problem. And uh, she, again, the deceit in the book of Genesis, that sometimes God works through and sometimes just gets us more and more into trouble. Um, but Tamar deceives Judah. Oh, so again, it didn't seem like that was too hard to deceive him. <laughs> so he's out doing whatever he's doing, hunting or something like that. And she dresses up like a prostitute. And again, doesn't seem to have to work very hard to entice Judah to sleep with her. And they do the deed. And then um, she says to Judah, okay, you realize this wasn't for free. What are you going to pay me? And he's like, well, I'm here all alone. I don't really have anything, but I promise you, I will give you a goat. Isn't that great? <laughs> Maybe goats were worthwhile. I will give you a goat. And she says, okay, I need a pledge. I need something that will assure me something valuable enough that you're not just going to run away because you're leaving me here with nothing. And so she asks for his, um, these two symbols of who he is. I guess his signet and his and some kind of a staff or something like that. But they're clearly things that identify Judah as Judah. And he goes off. She has a child. Her kinspeople are outraged because they do not know who the father is. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff going on. And they essentially ask her who the father is. And she summons Judah before this gets known. And she says, uh, you're the father. And shows him his things to prove that he's the father. But she does it privately. She could have done this publicly. And her kinspeople would have torn Judah from limb from limb. She does it privately. She doesn't put Judah to shame. She doesn't endanger his life. She's got a bigger plan, of course. And Judah sees this and she sees that she is acting with honor and caring for him and protecting him and realizes that he would never do such a thing for anyone and declares that she is clearly a more righteous and just person than I'll ever be. And he takes her as his wife. And then the promise, there's the son that she bears is named Perez. And the promise of the covenant goes through Perez. Um, and, that, and he takes his place. But here's the thing, that experience of being, I guess, he wasn't really deceived. He knew he was sleeping with a prostitute. He just didn't know who she was. But of not being exposed, of being um, protected, something, again, he would never do, seems to have a, had a profound effect upon Judah. So the great drama of the book of Genesis, the great climax of the book of Genesis, Joseph, of course, is in Egypt. And, you know, as the slave of, of Photophar, he gets thrown in jail. He ends up, you know, 
interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams. He becomes the viceroy of Egypt. He's the second most powerful human being in the entire earth. Famine covers the thing. He has protected even Egypt from famine. Everyone else has to come to Egypt to buy just increasing the power of the empire. And the sons of Jacob are starving. And Judah does, or Jacob doesn't really want them to go to Egypt because he doesn't want to lose anybody. So he lets the 10 of them go, but not Benjamin. And they go and they meet with Joseph. He does not reveal himself, but he knows who they are. Great drama. And um, he gives them food, but promises that they have to come back again and this time bring Benjamin with them. And the sons report this to Jacob. He wants no parts of it, but they're starving. And so they go back this time with Benjamin, Joseph's full brother. And again, stuff, they get fed, they get gifts. And Joseph does, plays his trick and hides his, one of his precious cups in, in Benjamin's sack, unbeknownst to anyone. Reports that this is, that's reported that the soldiers come, they take all, all 11 of them back, search the property and find that it's Benjamin who has stolen the cup and that therefore Benjamin is going to have to stay in Egypt and pay for his crime. And at this point, it's Judah who steps forward, who says and acknowledges something that's true. It would kill our father if Benjamin doesn't return. Which is a very different position for Judah to be in than he was when he sold Joseph into slavery in the first place. Didn't care about his father then, didn't care about Joseph. It would kill our father if Benjamin doesn't come home with us. Take me instead. Make me your slave. Hold me responsible for the crime. Again, something Judah would never, ever do. Until he had been taught a lesson by his daughter-in-law pretending to be a prostitute. Tricking him and then not shaming him. And so the rabbis look at this story, the story of this almost utterly insignificant woman in the whole story of all, all this great, all these patriarchs running around none of whom are terribly significant at this point anyway, but that the lesson of the book of Genesis, the redeeming lesson of the book of Genesis, the one moment where somebody actually steps up and says, it's not about me, it's about something bigger than me. It's not about me, it's about my family and my father who I don't even like. It's not about me and it's more about my brother who I actually despise because his mother is not my mother. And Judah steps up and says, I'm willing to offer myself for the sake of people I actually don't even care about. In which the book of Genesis kind of comes to a conclusion and a climax in the one and only redemptive act in the whole book. All motivated by a lesson that this lion, and Judah is called the lion, was learned from 
an insignificant woman who chose not to shame him, but instead to call forth from him honor and respect and the right thing to do. Judah finally learned what the, how to do the right thing. And he may be the only one in the book of Genesis who learned how to do the right thing. But at the end of the book, he has learned to do the right thing. The family is reunited. Jacob's reunited with his, both of his sons, Benjamin and Joseph. And uh, the, he, he has these horrible things about what his life was like without them. But it has been redeemed because of the one righteous act on the part of one of the most unrighteous people in the whole story. And interestingly, we don't really hear much as, as the history of Israel goes on. You hear smitherings here and there of, of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and the tribes that they ended up, um, they had two half tribes named, named after them. They're rather insignificant. These two loved sons of Jacob are not that important. The tribe that matters is Judah. From the tribe of Judah come the kings of Israel. And from the tribe of Judah comes, as we know, the Messiah, the one who would truly restore the world to the dignity that God created it at the beginning. So there's the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And it's, it's heroes, it's unlikely heroes. It's again, not a, not a very pretty story. Um, but that, that, that kernel of truth that the rabbis found in there, there's one redemptive thing that happens in the entire book of Genesis. And that's that Judah learns a lesson. Somehow or another, he learns and he is converted, he's changed, he repents and he does something different. And the only reason he did that is because he was taught that lesson by a woman who, for whom he had no regard whatsoever. All right, so this afternoon, we'll dive into the women of Exodus. <laughs> yeah, that's a little happier story, but not much, <laughs> not much, <laughs> okay. <laughs>